turn in your Bibles into to Galatians uh, chapter 2. We're going to be in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 14. And if you are looking in the white Bibles, which we have there at the end of the, the pew, uh, you can turn to page 566 to find our passage this morning. So if you would, once you get there, stand for the reading of God's Word. Before we start, I just want to say how wonderful it is that I'm getting to preach to you this morning. Um, I thought the last time I preached was the last time I was going to preach this year, and God's providence just made it so that I got to preach at least one more time, and uh, He definitely did a work on me in this passage. So Galatians 2, 11 through 14 says, But when Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. When they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we just want to stop our lives for a moment to recognize that you are the creator of all the beauty that we see around us. That your majesty is displayed in late night thunderstorms and it's also displayed in the vibrant colors that we see in the sky and the trees and the grass and the flowers. Lord, you alone are worthy to be praised and that's what we hope to do this morning is to bring you glory through our song, through our prayers, through this word, through our interactions with one another, Lord. I pray that you would calm my heart, that you would use me to speak a word for you this morning. God, thank you for this really wonderful story that Paul put in this letter to the Galatians that we get to now read 2,000 years later and see how it applies to us. Lord, be with us. Holy Spirit, be at work in our hearts. Show us where our sin is. Help us to repent and turn towards Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so this morning we come to the end of Paul's story that we started last week in which he sets out to defend his apostleship. Pastor Garrison walked us through Paul's Paul's story and God's gospel, starting with him not being taught the gospel by any man, but from receiving it through Jesus Christ. From that jumping off point, Paul then gives us a very brief overview of how his ministry began, starting first in Arabia, then heading back to Damascus. After three years, he finally went to Jerusalem to meet with Peter for a quick 15 days. And then he was off again to Syria 
and Cilicia. It wasn't for another 14 years that Paul would go back to Jerusalem to confirm that the gospel that he had been proclaiming to the Gentiles was the same gospel that Peter and the other apostles were preaching to the Jews. With his gospel lining up with the pillars of the church, Paul's apostleship is affirmed, and he and Barnabas are sent out to continue their work among the Gentiles. And then we get into this passage, and Paul wraps up the story by sharing one of the more interesting stories that we see in all of the Bible. Let me just set this scene for you. You have Paul and Barnabas and Peter sitting around a table uh, at a Syrian barbecue. And they're all enjoying some delicious bacon-wrapped shrimp and pulled pork and pork ribs. Um, They're sitting among Jews from Antioch as well as some of their Gentile believer friends. Everyone is having a great time sharing stories of how God has changed their lives and celebrating the freedom that they have together in Christ. All of a sudden, some men from Jerusalem who came from James show up at this barbecue. Peter then becomes very conscious of what he's eating and who he is eating with. He is afraid of what his fellow Jews might think about him. He is afraid of what his fellow Jews might say about him back in Jerusalem. He immediately gets up from his seat and leads the company of believers behind. And seeing the fear in Peter's eyes, the other Jews start to bail from the table as well until finally Barnabas, the Barnabas, Paul's guy, Barnabas, gets up and walks away as well. Paul, in seeing all of this take place, finally stands up and goes to Peter and calls him out, right out in the open for everyone to see. Now, I know that all the details of that story are in the biblical account, like the barbecue and the bacon-wrapped shrimp and pork ribs, um, but for the most part, it is an account of the passage we just read moments ago. And in this passage, we see two very different and opposite ways of walking in the truth of the gospel. We see Peter and eventually other Jews and Barnabas walk out of step with the truth of the gospel. How do they do that? They draw back in fear and act hypocritically. And on the other side of things, Paul is walking in the truth of the gospel. How does he keep in step with the gospel truth? by standing in defense of it. And that's what I hope to be able to argue this morning, that as we walk in step with the truth of the gospel, there will be times that we have to defend it. That as we walk in step of the truth of the gospel, there will be times that we have to defend it. Let's look at both sides of this coin What does it look like to walk out of step with the truth of the gospel? And on the other side, what does it look like to walk in step with the truth of the gospel? First, walking out of step with the truth of the gospel. Look again with me at our passage starting in the middle of verse 12. But when they 
came, he drew back, Cephas, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. How then do we see Peter walking out of step with the gospel? Well, to begin with, we see him drawing back in fear. It says that he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What, what is Peter fearful of? He is fear in fear of being seen eating and drinking with the Gentile believers. He is fearful that word will get back to Jerusalem. He is worried that those false brothers that Paul writes about in verse 4 will go after him and bring his ministry down. The reason that Paul includes this letter, this story in the letter to the Galatian church is because a deep gospel issue is being addressed in this story. This is the same Peter who saw the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the same Peter who in Matthew 28, 19, along with the other disciples, heard Jesus say to them, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then again in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, But you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Peter, who has seen the resurrected Christ and is the rock upon which the church would be built upon, falls into his old ways and fear grips him. Let me just stop real quick and say that this story here is kind of comforting. Not that, that Peter is fearful, we, we don't take comfort in his sin, but in knowing that this is the same Peter who saw Jesus resurrected. This was the same Peter who goes on to write his letters in First and Second Peter. This is the same Peter who goes to the cross and counts himself not worthy to be crucified in the same direction as his risen Lord and Savior. This is the same Peter as that. Yet he falls into fear. And I take a little bit of comfort in that because there are times when I'm fearful. There are times when, th when problems or issues arise in my own heart that I am fearful. And instead of staying in my fear and my shame, not only can I look to Jesus, but I can look at the example of Peter here and knowing that God still used him to do a mighty work. Well, this fear that Peter displays then leads not only himself but others to walk out of step of the gospel by leading them into hypocrisy. Verse 13 says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And don't you see this domino effect? Peter's fear, his life, he is no longer ref living, reflecting the truth of the gospel. Then, and seeing a pillar of the church fall into this approach towards the Gentiles, other Jews who are with them begin start acting the same way, which then leads maybe to Paul's biggest surprise, Barnabas falling into the same sin. This is the Barnabas who had been Paul's right-hand man, preaching the gospel alongside Paul. 
In Acts 11, 22 through 26, Luke gives us a story of one of the first encounters between Paul and Barnabas. He writes, And they, the church in Jerusalem, sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So in this story given in the Bible about Paul, then known as Saul, and Barnabas and their lives as missionaries, they start out in Antioch, preaching and teaching and seeing a lot of Jews and Gentiles come to salvation. So we can just take from that knowledge and safely assume that Barnabas has sat with these brothers and sisters in Christ before at the table and that he has eaten their Gentile food with them before. With the knowledge of this story, it's safe to say that some of the Jews that led, Bar- or that it's safe to say that some of the Jews that Barnabas led um, were friends that he had led to, uh, led to Christ. It's also safe to assume that the Gentiles he was sitting and eating with, <laughs> sitting and eating with, whom he left because of the fear of the men in Jerusalem, were the same people that he had through the power of the Holy Spirit added to the church in Antioch. It is no wonder that Paul reacted to seeing these things in the way that he did. And unfortunately, Peter, Barnabas, and the Jews aren't the only believers who struggle with fear and hypocrisy. It is something that the church as a whole, and even more specifically, probably, something that our church struggles with too. Some of us might have a fear of what our parents might think of us moving into the inner city to join an inner city church plant because they've worked really hard to set us up and to give it, let us live in a better environment than what they grew up in. Are we fearful of following after the Lord's call upon our lives because it puts us into opposition with sinful desires that we have held so dear for so long? And who here hasn't felt or acted like a hypocrite? I'm sure that we all could raise our hands in affirmation of that. But I want us to notice something here about the hypocrisy that Paul is addressing here. The hypocrisy of one can become the hypocrisy of many really quick. And while Paul isn't specifically addressing the sin of hypocrisy, let this be a warning to us leaders that if we are not careful about where we are stepping, we can start leading a lot of people along the wrong path in short order. Whether you are a pastor, a deacon, a father, a mother, a manager, or any other type of leadership role, And I count myself in that list, be warned, that if we walk out of step with the truth of the gospel, we could end up leading our friends, our family, co-workers, 
neighbors, and God forbid our children to deny the only gospel that will save them. Thankfully, Paul, and even initially Peter, show us what the contrast of the fear and hypocrisy is. Their actions show us what it means to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. First, to walk in step of the truth of the gospel, you don't even need to step at all. You need to sit. Sit in the freedom that only, that only justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone can provide. At the beginning of verse 12, there is an example of that. And wouldn't you believe that after spending most of the first part of this sermon condemning Peter, we're going to look at his conduct to see what gospel freedom looks like. Paul writes, For certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. That statement right there from Paul would be earth-shattering to the Jews. That statement would not have been possible without the death and resurrection of Jesus. That statement would not have been possible without the Great Commission. It wouldn't have been possible without Acts 10 and Peter's vision of the great sheet coming down filled with what at one point was considered common and unclean animals. It wouldn't have been possible had he not heard the voice say, what God has made clean, do not call common. It would not have been possible without Peter meeting Cornelius and his family and then seeing the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles just as it had been poured out on the Jews at Pentecost. Why is this statement such an arresting statement? It is because Peter is no longer observing the Old Testament food laws that any good Jew in his day would observe. Not only that, But he was sitting and eating with the Gentiles. And we see in verse 14, Paul writes, addressing Peter, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile. So clearly, Peter at some point was living like the Gentiles were living. Peter is at least eating as a Gentile would eat. He is living in the freedom of the gospel. He knew that it was no longer adherence to the law that brought salvation. It was through grace alone. Now listen to Peter's words as he talks in front of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. Here he is addressing the Pharisees who were claiming that circumcision was a necessary part of salvation. Peter stands before them all and says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But... We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
It is no longer the law of Moses that brings right standing before God. And as Paul writes here in in chapter 2, verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So one way of walking in the truth of the gospel is by sitting in the freedom of the gospel. Another way to walk in the truth of the gospel is by standing to defend it. Look again at verse 11, and we see that Paul stands up for the gospel. And then in verse 14, we get the details of what it actually looked like. He says, I opposed him, Cephas, Peter, to his face because he stood condemned. And then later on in verse 14, we get the detail. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is not, as some people think, that Paul is trying to show his superiority to Peter here. Nor does he have something out for Peter. There's no battle between these two guys. It isn't even as some of the early church fathers interpreted that Peter was pretending to do wrong so that Paul had the opportunity to correct him and in turn instruct them all. No, what is happening here is that Paul is saying that the gospel is the authority over himself, over the angels, And yes, even over Jesus' right-hand man, Peter. Paul stands for the truth of the gospel because there is only one gospel to defend. And as the passage unfolds, Peter's deviation into a different gospel is public and is leading others astray. Paul sees this, and before them all defends the gospel before Peter's face. You may may think Paul was in the wrong here in the way that that he approached Peter and, and, you know, if you apply the Matthew 18 principle here, he's clearly not in step with that. He didn't just go one-on-one. He didn't even go two-on-one or three-on-one. Paul's actually in the right here, though. Because private offenses deserve private rebuke. But something as public and detrimental as this offense demanded that Paul rebuke Peter in front of everyone who was with them so that in correcting Peter, he would instruct them all. Well, you may be thinking to yourself, this is all well and good. Glad that Paul stood up to Peter so that he didn't continue to pull others along down with him. But what does this have to do with me? I'm I'm not Jewish. I, I don't have to worry about the Old Testament food laws. I eat what I want, right? Stop and think about it for a moment. 
What are the things that we battle with when it comes to our freedom in Christ? Are there areas that you see in your own heart where law and legalism are creeping in and taking a grip and where you are not fully trusting in the grace provided through Jesus Christ at the cross? Paul writes later on, and we'll get into this in a few months, in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And we have been freed from the slavery of sin. We have been freed from the law. We get to live in a true freedom that only comes from knowing Jesus. Let us not allow our old selves to start creeping in and trying to take our freedom from us. We should also take note of this passage because of the stance that Paul takes in defending the gospel. He defends it boldly and without fail. We need this story because of the way in which our culture is headed. Just look around you and you'll see how religious liberty is being taken away slowly. Freedom of speech and freedom of religion are no longer guarantees that you can count on from our government. The culture, which was once at least pretending to be Christian, has thrown off that facade completely and is now in a battle to silence Christians in every forum and on every issue. Who knows what our culture will look like in 5, 10, 20, or even 50 years from now. No matter what it looks like, the real issue that we have to face is whether or not the gospel is worth defending? Is it, defend, is it worth defending with our lives? What does it look like to our children if we not only teach them memory verses and catechism questions, but actually live out our faith in a very real way that shows them that the gospel that has saved us is something that is real and that is life-changing, not just something that we give lip service to. We see in both Peter and in Paul's and the other apostles' lives that this gospel was worth death. Is that something that we're willing to go that far with? And my argument would be that the gospel is something that we would stand on till the death. The good news of the gospel is the only hope for us. It's the only hope for our kids and our families, for our neighborhoods and our cities, our nation and our world. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only thing that will bring salvation. Let us stand up and defend the gospel with our lives. And as the hymn writer once penned, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only 
hope in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that if it ever does come to the point where it's our life, we're standing in truth with the gospel, I pray that you would embolden us to be able to count our life as nothing. That your gospel is worth defending to the death. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. This is not something within our own power that we can accomplish, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, who you've sent to seal us for salvation and to, pre- to preserve us until the end, Lord. I pray that we would be able to be emboldened through that. God, I ask that as we go out of here today that you would leave questions in our minds of where we might be fearful or acting hypocritically. Or, Lord, if there are opportunities that we may see where we have a chance to defend the gospel, where we have a chance to go out and evangelize to someone, where we have an opportunity to meet the culture head on, I pray, so, pray that we would do so in a loving way, trying to win the person and not the argument, trying to win the soul and not the argument, Lord. I pray that you would keep us faithful to the end. That's your name we pray. Amen.